0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the history of the castle, the fortified buildings that were constructed throughout the Middle Ages. Very important part of history, of course. Why were they so important? Well, castles were a, a political, a military, an economic, and, and an administrative uh, focal point throughout many civilizations. Throughout, uh, particularly in Europe, much of European civilization throughout the Middle Ages. Um, Their primary function, of course, was to house and defend rich nobles and their retinues. They were usually built in strategic locations in order to fortify or defend the area around them, often on raised ground near popular travel routes in places where they could project power into the surrounding region. And they had a huge influence on on all all sorts of stuff from... uh, Urban development to uh, you know military tactics and strategy, all sorts of stuff heavily influenced by castles, and they themselves were influenced as uh, as history continued. You know, they changed in uh, in form and in function as well as we'll get across. Today we're going to mainly focus on uh, castles in historical Europe. That's where castles are most closely associated with. That's what uh, that's the area they're most closely associated with, of course. Uh, but as you'll discover. Before the end of this episode, European castles strongly influenced by military architecture from other parts of the world, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, from the early Middle Ages right through the early modern period, they, they changed, they evolved, they adapted new technologies, they became larger, grander and more impressive. We're going to talk about all these changes as well as why they were built in the first place, how they were built, how they were brought down and ultimately the reason for their demise as uh, militarily relevant buildings. As ever, a lot to get across today, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get underway with the history of the castles here, history castles. Here we go. We're going all the way back, going all the way back here. Well, to essentially the beginning of recorded human history, because it turns out that when you have nice things and you don't want other people to come and take those nice things off you, coming up with a way to stop other people from able, from even being able to get to those nice things in the first place is a good way to keep having the nice things that you don't want other people to get. Fortified structures are not, not a new idea. It's not as if, as you know, as the as the uh, the early Middle Ages began, people were like, oh, I should build walls around my gold. That's not, you know, that's not how it went. Before, before we come to the classic idea of the medieval castle, let's talk about some of its precursors, because we go back a long way with this. There's evidence of large fortify, uh, fortified buildings, huge fortified uh, structures being built in truly ancient civilizations like the Indus, uh, Indus River Valley, uh, Egypt throughout Mesopotamia, and of course, obviously, in China. Now these weren't castles per se. We'll come to the distinction of between a fort and a castle directly, but you know, if you've got a lot of food, a lot of wealth and a lot of other stuff that you want to keep for yourself, putting big walls between you and the people who might, you know, try to take it from you is a great place to start. And then if you've got other people that you can perhaps give a little bit of that money to to make sure the rest of the money stays in your pockets, they can stand Near or on top of the uh, the the buildings that you've built to keep your stuff safe and prevent other people from coming and getting it. So again, pretty rudimentary stuff here, pretty basic ideas. But it is interesting to to see the way that the uh, the castle took a lot of these ideas to the to the next level, you know, and and really developed and advanced a lot of these very core principles of uh, I, I guess just basic possession, I suppose, really. Um, but throughout the Bronze and Iron Ages, uh, the, these fortified buildings, they, they, they sort of they started to crop up in, in very similar kind of areas uh, throughout the entire, you know, throughout all of human civilization on top of hills, hill forts. They were the most common form of fortification like this, as you might have guessed. These were forts that, that were, surprise, surprise, built on top of a hill, very well, well-named piece of technology there. Hill forts were usually earthworks, that is to say that they were they were built uh, they were built with uh, by digging out ditches. and then the dirt that was used to, uh, to the, the dirt that was dug out of these ditches was used to build mounds that was next to these ditches, fortified with palisades, walls, all sorts of stuff like that. Now these ditches and mounds, they usually surrounded the top of a hill. And uh, there was usually more than one ring of ditches and mounds. Most hill forts would have several concentric rings of ditches, mounds, palisades, whatever else. And inside this fortified area, inside the ditches and the mounds, of the palisade, there would be like a little settlement. You know that could be easily defended, given not only the fortifications but also the elevation of the hill fort, sitting you know on, on top of a hill as it was very easy to very easy to defend, and uh, very common indeed, particularly common in northern Europe. Plenty of accounts of the Romans encountering them as they went around, uh, you know, conquering here, there, and everywhere, both uh, during the Republic. And the, uh, the imperial uh, uh, phases of, of that civilization there. Despite being pretty primitive, hill forts were still very hard to attack. And uh, even the might of ancient Rome had some trouble with some of them. They had to bring in, you know, siege weapons and uh, siege engines in order to take down hill forts that were, again, quite easy to defend. Um, but uh, for that matter, the Romans used to also build forts themselves. Uh, you know, I mean, most civilizations did. The Romans, they would build uh, great big rectangular forts as their territory expanded. They'd secure their conquests, maintain maintain control. A lot of these were simple earthwork structures with palisades, especially when an army was, uh, was on the move. But others were more permanent there are Roman evidence you know there's, there's Roman forts that uh, that were built with stone especially if it was in an area that they were looking to you know again settle in more sort of more permanently and have a have a, a bit more a bit a bit of a tighter control over the uh, over the surrounding population. but none of these structures that we've talked about so far, the forts or the hill forts, whatever else, none of these are castles and there's a very simple reason why. people still debate even today about the exact definition of the word of the word castle but, The most broadly accepted meaning of the word castle is a fortified structure, right, that was built to house a noble family, not just serve a military purpose. And this may seem like a, you know, a a largely academic distinction, but it's actually a very important one for the reasons that I said before. Castles took on a role that wasn't just military in the day-to-day affairs of the medieval period. Castles were they were an economic, a, a political, and an administrative center point of, uh, of, of life in the Middle Ages. And for that reason, it's important to make that distinction between, you know, an ancient hill fort and a medieval castle. As we move from late antiquity into the Middle Ages, there are a few important changes that took place that led to the development of the castle, as opposed to the fort, in Europe. On a larger scale there was a shift in the way that political power was focused. For instance, the collapse of the Carolingian Empire in the 9th century, this de- these decentralized political power took uh, a lot of power away from you know just, just one set of hands and, and spread it out amongst, more, amongst smaller lords and barons, made them more powerful. And in addition to uh, things like this happening, this decentralization of power, the movement of people, whether it was for migration or invasion, Prompted many landholders to want to bolster their defences in the face of, 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 you know potential aggressors, Islamic conquest, Viking raids, Magyar migration. All of these things combined with this less centralised political power structure meant that local rulers not only wanted to do more to protect themselves and their nice things from potential, uh, potential enemies. They also now had greater power and influence that they wanted that, that enabled them to build, you know. Castles and project this power over a greater area with more autonomy than they would have had under a centralized system, for example, like the Carolingian Empire. So, what did these nobles do? They started to fortify the places that they lived, or indeed they moved to new places that were easier to defend and fortify, and they built their homes there. And this is where we begin to come across the early ancestors of the medieval castle local lords building houses of stone so they wouldn't burn, up on high ground, often artificial high ground, surrounded by walls, which would be made of earth, wood, or maybe in some cases even stone. This was rarer in uh, in, in earlier history, although it gets more common later on as we'll talk about. These structures are referred to as Mott and Bailey castles, and they are widely accepted as when "Quote unquote true castles began in the late uh, in the late 10th century. Mot here doesn't refer to a moat. We'll come to that. They th- these these words do have a similar etymology. A mot is not a, a body of water. It's an artificial hill, flattened at the top, and it's on top of this flat hill where the bailey would be built. A bailey refers to uh, the, part of the, uh, the part of the castle that was the, the fortified part, the, the part within the, the, the curtain walls, whatever else. Inside the bailey, you'd find the keep or the donjon, as it was called. The word keep is actually a more modern one. Back then, the main building inside a bailey, usually built very tall, very strong, it was called a donjon. And, and it's from that word that we get the modern word, you won't be surprised to learn, dungeon. The lord and his family would live inside the donjon, uh, while inside the the curtain walls, depending on the depending on the size of the fortification, of course, you would find the lord's retinue, uh, his staff, knights, workers, servants, all sorts of stuff, as well as other buildings. Again, if if size permitted, you'd you'd see things like large motte and bailey castles could have barracks, stables, storage facilities, houses for the staff, sometimes even things like a chapel. Some got so big, in fact, that. Uh, another layer another wall would be built uh, inside the bailey leading to an inner bailey and an outer bailey so you'd have a sort of it uh, you know you would you would come through the entrance into an area that would then again have another wall on the other side of it that would lead to another area the inner bailey where you'd find the donjon uh, with the uh, the outer bailey as a sort of buffer zone, and again, this ba- i mean, the baileys were often the, the walls around the baileys were often built of wood. As time goes on, more of them would be built of stone. And the reason that stone was preferred, obviously, I mean, I probably do not have to tell you this, is because it didn't burn and it was much—it's much harder to break than wood. But the problem is stones are expensive. We'll talk about this when we talk about the actual construction of these buildings. But almost invariably, the in in most parts of Europe, at least, the donjon would be built of stone. Uh, this was one of the main draws to building a Motten Bailey castle. It was one of the main reasons that lords like this would build structures uh, like these castles, is because the, the the upgrade from a wooden house to a stone house was was enormous. And you know, even if you surrounded it by with with burnable palisade walls, it was still a very difficult thing to uh, to to capture a well defended donjon uh, that that was the centerpiece of a and Bailey castle, and. In, in an effort to shore up the defence of the structure as a whole, the gatehouse, the main entrance to every castle, was often also built of stone. The gatehouse was naturally the weakest point of the castle's defences. It was a place where, you know, by definition, people could enter and exit. It was a place that by design was, was you know, supposed to facilitate that. So it was important that a gatehouse was was much more defensible than any other part, because again, as I say, it was the weakest part of, of any Mott and Bailey castle. So gatehouses often built of stone, reflecting how Important they were in the defence of the whole castle, and while they varied in size and shape, the typical gatehouse still had a range of common, a number of common factors to it. Often it had two gates that were usually reinforced with a portcullis, so, you know it's that that metal uh, grid that could be uh, you know, could be you know lowered to prevent people from getting in and and out, I guess, but mainly from getting in. Um, and these two gates would be on on either side of, uh, at either end, I should say, of a covered corridor. This meant that if the gatehouse was breached, or if the first gate was breached, as the attackers would make their way to the second gate inside the gatehouse, right these attackers would be concentrated into a confined space that they could be fired upon from above, from the defending forces that are in the upper story of the gatehouse. This is, you know, essentially they're creating a choke point, a bottleneck that made it very difficult for attackers to get through onto the, into the other side, into the outer bailey without suffering heavy losses from being, you know, bombarded from above inside the gatehouse. Now, you're probably at one point, I mean, we'll address this here. At one point, you're going to Probably say, oh, of course, that's where they poured the boiling oil on people. Now, this wasn't as common as you might think. It certainly happened, uh, particularly in the Middle East and Northern Africa. It was much more common for boiling oil to be used in the defence of a castle. But it wasn't very common throughout Europe in particular. It didn't happen that much. A couple of reasons for this oil was quite expensive. Um, and fires, <laughs> think about this, if you're trying to defend a wooden palisade or any, any part of a, a fortification that's made of wood, heating up an enormous cauldron of oil on top of it is probably not a good idea. The risk of fire is very great. And even when these fortifications were made of stone, oil's still very expensive. Like setting it on fire and throwing it on people that are trying to inv- trying to get into the castle is not a great sort of use of it. As I say, more common in um, in in middle in the Middle East and North Africa, where it was a little more plentiful, a little less expensive. But all the same, the, the boiling oil uh, and 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 even to a lesser extent, boiling water, from from what my research indicated, was not as common as you might think. It certainly happened; certainly was part of the defence of a castle. But it wasn't sort of ubiquitous. It wasn't a you know a defence that every single castle uh, uh, you know sought to make use of. Anyway. Gatehouses, bottom line, key part of the defense of a castle as a way to bottleneck attackers and give defenders the maximum opportunity to attack them while they were seeking to gain entrance. Um, And as an attacker, you had a very difficult task. Not only did you have to get through this gatehouse into the outer bailey, past another wall with potentially another gatehouse into the inner bailey, you then had to assault the donjon, which of course was made of stone. It was a tall order. And structures like this, even these Mott and bailey castles, very early on in the, the career of the castle, were notoriously difficult to attack as a result of all of these defensive measures. You're fighting uphill up the Mott, this this artificial hill. You, you can see even the ones that have survived today; these hills are largely conical and quite steep, difficult to uh, difficult to climb at the best of times. Never mind when you're getting attacked by arrow fire, and then you've got gatehouse baileys, you know, dungeons to get through. So very, very difficult indeed. They're widely considered to be the first proper castles because of their defensibility as a home of a noble lord, and their impact, as you can imagine, very significant. Castles like this, as they were built, they weren't just used for defense. They were used to project power, to rule over the surrounding area as a headquarters for military force and political force as well. Nobles would hold court in their castle, meaning that they were a center point of, uh, again, military, uh, not only military, but political administrative affairs. And in the 10th and the 11th centuries, a great many castles were built throughout Europe. In some areas, you needed the king's permission to do something like this, but in others, you, you didn't. And in some cases, even near as where you did, local barons were actually autonomous and powerful enough to defy the king's rules and build castles of their own volition. So they started going up all over Europe once it, realized, once it was sort of discovered how useful they were uh, as, a, as, a, as a military stronghold and a political centre. Uh, they started going up, large ones, small ones, doesn't matter. There was a new way to concentrate and project power and people jumped on it. But as we move further into the 11th century now, the number of castles spread throughout Europe increases enormously. There seemed to be a huge surge in, in castle castle building from the year 1000 and beyond Um, And in addition to the number of castles that were built, the way that they were built began to change significantly as well. Now, obviously, it's difficult to make sweeping generalizations and and still remain accurate. But broadly speaking, more and more of these structures began to be built with stone rather than with wood. Now, a range of advantages that are pretty self-evident when it comes to building with stone. It's harder, it's tougher, it doesn't burn, it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot stronger if you build a wall out of stone rather than out of wood. But there were also some significant drawbacks to actually, to, mainly within within the construction process when it came to building with stone. We're going to talk about constructing castles a little later on, but I'll give you a little bit of a sneak preview here with what, what, it, in what working with stone involved, right? Early castles built of wooden earth, right? Wood, earth, readily available. You could chop down forests, you can dig up dirt, very easy indeed. Stone, on the other hand, expensive. You had to quarry it, you had to transport it, you had to pay skilled masons to shape it, and it wasn't very easy to build with or anywhere near as plentiful as timber. As a result, stone castles didn't become more popular until the 11th century and beyond. And even then, not everywhere. In places like Iberia, where, where timber was less available, stone castles were, were much more common than in other locations. For example, throughout Scandinavia, wooden castles remained the most common type of, of castle in Scandinavia for a very, very long time. Some castles were, began to be built with moats. Um, they're not as common as the popular conception of a castle would have you believe, but there were certainly plenty of castles that were built with moats. Uh, often you'd be digging ditches around the castle anyway for earthwork fortifications and, uh, and also to disrupt the deployment of siege weapons. Very difficult to roll a battering ram or a siege tower up to a, a curtain wall if there's a ditch in the way. So if you've got this ditch, you may as well fill it with water, right, to make it even more difficult. And also, to protect uh, to protect your castle from uh, from having tunnels dug underneath the walls themselves, right? This a, a moat made that more or less impossible. You'd have to dig right under the moat, and even then, it'd be a, uh, it'd be very touch and go digging a a, a tunnel underneath a moat. Um, while we're on digging, by the way, many castles, the, the walls didn't just stop, didn't, weren't just, you know, put on the ground. Many castles had fortifications du- uh, dug deep into the earth, uh, you know, especially the ones that didn't have moats in order to prevent people from tunneling underneath the walls, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the foundations of the castle dug deep into the ground to make sure that you couldn't tunnel underneath them. So moats and deep fortifications are a good way to prevent your castle castle from being undermined in that way. But of course, if you had a moat, you had to have a way to get across the moat, and this is where the drawbridge comes from. Everyone knows what a drawbridge is, a bridge that can be uh, lowered to allow access to the castle across the moat or raised in the case of an attack. Although, it has to be said, some castles didn't even bother with a drawbridge, they just had a regular stone bridge, which of course still bottlenecked uh, opposing um, attacking forces. And ultimately, still something that was obviously, you know, still very defensible in in the case of a of an attack. Now, castles didn't just change in form. You know, we're talking about stone buildings and whatever else. It wasn't just the form of castles that changed, but also their function as well. Um, don't forget, the castle was the home of a noble lord, and as a result, many castles were built not just to be defensible, but also to impress and intimidate and and represent the lord's power, and further. To this, They also had to be comfortable places to live. This was something that became more, more of a priority for many, especially wealthy lords as time went on. They wanted their donjons, they wanted their castles to be comfortable, right? Sometimes even at the cost of defensibility. In the 11th and into the 12th centuries, donjons were expanded and enlarged in many castles, often making them much weaker to attacks. So as to provide a more comfortable living space for the noble family that lived there. Now, you might have seen some pictures or even visited an old castle, or perhaps some ruins, and you may have seen the large, the almost cavernous interiors of some of the old donjons inside these uh, inside these castle complexes. For the most part, they weren't as big as they looked. Uh, they weren't actually that cavernous inside. They were usually partitioned with interior wooden walls that haven't stood the test of time. But nonetheless, Donjons became they they became more expansive, they became more lavishly decorated, they became more visually impressive, even if it meant that they became harder to defend. Again, the political needs of the lords that lived in them sometimes outweighed the military needs, and they needed to make sure their castle looked as grandiose and impressive as as, as possible. But it has to be said, their defences also improved uh, as time went on. This trade-off wasn't one that was easily made in many cases, and there were castles that became more and more defensible as time moves on. We move now into the 12th and 13th century. Castle construction continued to develop quite quickly as new technologies were adopted and incorporated into their design. In the late 12th century, a profound shift in how castles were built took place, one that began not even with construction. But be, uh, it actually began with where they were constructed, the locations that were chosen. Prior to the late 12th century, most castles. Very common to build them on a raised area, as we talked about, on a natural or an artificial hill, on a hill that had been enlarged uh, with manual labor, with people digging ditches and, and, and transporting earth there. Or they were used. Uh, they they would use existing fortifications from years past, and then maybe you know improve upon or or, or build build upon them. This obviously very strongly dictated the shape that these castles could be as the bailey would have to fit the terrain, right? It would have to be shaped around the the topography of the hill that it was on top of, for example. But towards the end, uh, towards the 13th century, towards the beginning of the 13th century here, castles began instead to be built more uniformly in shape using polygonal shapes that incorporated towers along the curtain walls. Instead of looking at the top of a hill and going, that's a great place for a castle, we'll just make it work – Instead, they looked for a place that would suit what the castle, what they wanted the castle to look like. And instead of compromising the shape of the castle, they would make the castle into the shape that they wanted to incorporate the latest uh, design, the latest breakthroughs, innovations in castle building technology. It might surprise you to learn this, right? But prior to the 13th century, towers weren't really common in castles. There'd be a gatehouse sure and there'd be the donjon as well, which I guess in some cases you could call it, you know, you could call a donjon a tower, but that'd be it. The walls wouldn't have towers along them. Now, however, castles are being built with regular straight walls and there would be towers interspersed along them and especially at the corners. And what this would do, these towers that sort of protruded from the walls themselves from the curtain walls, they would provide a firing platform for defenders that ran parallel to the wall, towers that stick out of the wall a bit, that allow people from inside these towers to shoot at attackers from the side, not just from straight on, parallel to the wall. This is referred to as enfilading fire, right? It increased the defensive pressure on attackers enormously because now they're being attacked from people on the battlements on top of the walls and also from the side, people being, ta- being uh, shooting at them now from these towers. Archers would fire through arrow slits. Of course, you've, all, you've everyone's seen an arrow slit. These arrow slits are built into the castle walls themselves, narrow windows that found a balance between range of fire from the inside while also not exposing the archer inside to fire from the outside. But archers could also fire from the battlements. Uh, battlements, you can imagine in in your mind what, a, uh, what, a, what the battlements of a castle looks like. These crenellated walls, uh, that pattern of re- rectangular gaps, defining characteristic of the iconic castle, of course. Um, the parapet of a castle, the wall on top of the battlement, uh, would be divided into crenels, uh, the gaps, and merlons, being the uh, the higher bit. You'd take you'd take cover behind a, a merlon, lean out behind uh, through a uh, through a crenel, you'd fire through the crenel, and then take uh, cover through the merlon to avoid enemy fire. So, these straight crenelated wall walls reinforced with protruding towers, right, meant that archers could rain down fire on attackers from all angles, never mind a Palisade wall, you know, that that is... is Nowhere near. It pales in comparison to the size and the and the and the shape and the and the grandeur and the defensibility of a stone wall. You've now got archers on top of that, firing from every angle conceivable to uh, against these these attackers that are attempting to uh, to, to storm the wall, which, which they didn't do very often, obviously because they knew it was almost certainly going to be a death sentence. Right? There are also a bunch of other architectural innovations that influence castle design in this period. None of it was that exciting, to be honest. Things like barrel-pointed or groined vaults over undercrofts and cisterns with elaborate scarped drains. I mean, boring. I don't, you know, we're not interested in that. But there were some other cool features of castles from this period. And one of them was the development of increasingly cunning postern gates. Now, you may know what a postern gate is. A secret hidden entrance to a castle designed to avoid the detection of an attacking and especially besieging enemy. And, and its function, the function of a postern Gate, was to allow people to still come and go from the castle, even while it was under attack, even while it was under siege. Postern Gates enabled messengers and supplies to enter and leave the castle at will. But they were almost always very small, very well hidden, you know, tucked away out of the notice of any besieging armies. Sometimes, however, they would obviously result in the downfall of a uh, of a, the defence of a castle. Sieges would be successful if the Postern Gate was opened perhaps by a traitor from within the castle or if it were discovered and attacked at the wrong moment. So Postern Gates didn't come without risk but most castles had one all the same and, and they were a way again to uh, to help a uh, a castle that was being besieged hold out against a besieging army for a little longer than they otherwise would. Finally, As we well and truly move into the 13th century, another new concept emerged and largely took over castle design from here on out. Long gone, of course, is the shaping of a castle to the terrain. It's all straight walls and towers now, as I mentioned. But in addition to this, castles began to be built with concentric defences. Rather than just a single curtain wall, from the early 13th century onwards, castles were instead built with several curtain walls, again, depending on size, often two. Each curtain wall would be set higher than the last. You have your outer one, then the inner one would be set a little higher. And this meant, right, that there was another set of obstacles for attackers to get through in order to seize the castle. But it didn't stop at just them having to storm two sets of walls. Because think about this imagine the enemy. They've stormed one of the walls. They've stormed the outer curtain wall and they've taken it, right? They've managed to breach through the first wall and they're now in this, this middle area between the the first the, the outer wall and the inner wall, the, these concentric walls here. Both walls are lined with archers and other defenders. And while the attackers are bottlenecked in the area between these two walls, you've got people firing arrows, chucking stuff down from every angle, while you're getting across to to you know breach the second wall and get through to the uh, to the to the dungeon on the inner part of the of this castle. So it meant that you were effectively surrounded, taking fire from every angle, and in a very difficult position. So much so that this area is basically they were called killing fields, as attacking armies attempted to you know, make their way through these highly concentrated areas, these enclosed spaces under continuous heavy fire from, uh, from people on both walls, a very, very difficult thing indeed to take the, the inner part of a castle while going through a killing field like this. Concentric castles, as a result, became the, they became the standard design for European castles from the 13th century onwards as their defensive effectiveness was absolutely unmatched. But what was behind all these innovations? Why was it that all of these all of these new innovations, these new technologies begin to sprang up, spring up in European castle design at this time? It's still a matter of some debate. Not everyone's going to agree with uh, with this conclusion here. But the broad consensus seems to be that a lot of it was spurred on by the Crusades. As Christians traveled to and fought in the Holy Land, they came across architectural and technological innovation in many of the places they saw, not just in the Holy Land itself, but also on the way there. Uh, It's thought that uh, exposure to Byzantine architecture also had a strong influence on the way that castle designers went on to build European castles. Fortifications out east had all sorts of characteristics that were unfamiliar to Europeans, not just the ones that were incorporated into European design as well. I mean, you know, these European castle designers pilfered plenty of ideas from eastern castles, but not all of them. Uh, you know, they took concentric defences, towers for enfilade fire, sure, that sort of stuff. But eastern castles had things like arrow slits on multiple stories. European castle builders were convinced that this weakened uh, castle walls. They they didn't often put uh, multiple stories of arrow slits into, into walls. And many castles built by uh, Islamic forces had towers that weren't even connected to castles themselves. They had sort of almost little drawbridges that used planks that enabled defenders to go out to these exterior towers and uh, have a greater ra- uh, range of fire on attackers there. And this was not something that was adopted by uh, in European castle architecture, but it was very, very common in Islamic castle design. Uh, other advancements as well, other uh, pieces of technology like bent entrances, where gatehouses would have corridors that double back on themselves, like a queue at the airport. They were very common in the east, never really adopted in the west. It, you know, They could double the time it took for an attacker to get from the inside to the outside of a gatehouse, but never really caught on in Europe. But other advancements like machicolations, downward-facing holes built into battlements that allowed defenders to drop things onto attackers below, they were pilfered from eastern castle design, and they became very commonplace in the west. But as we move from the 13th into the 14th uh, centuries and beyond, the classical ideal of the medieval castle, multiple curtain walls, crenellated battlements, towers, sometimes a moat, big keep in the middle, this is when it really began to solidify. And it's probably what you picture in your mind when you think of a classical, a typical medieval castle. These castles were... Commonly found throughout France and England, two regions that led the way with castle design and construction, but that's not to say that they weren't common in other areas. Heaps of them were built in Iberia, of course, due to the ongoing conflict there between Christians and Muslims, and uh, there are thousands, tens of thousands of other castles spread from Scotland to the Baltics, from Germany to Malta. They were everywhere. They were everywhere. But many of the famous castles that survived from the medieval period uh, many of the castles that were built, you know, throughout these years that we've already discussed today, they've survived. Of course, built of stone, many of them they were. They've uh, they have stood the test of time. They've become iconic buildings today. The Scottish Edinburgh castle from the 11th century, the French Chateau Gaillard from the uh, the 12th, the Welsh Beaumaris Castle from the 13th century, the English the English Bodium Castle from the 14th with its ornamental moat. All of these castles have stood the test of time and give you an insight. You can you can go online and compare the 14th century Bodium Castle with its crenellations with its straight walls and its protruding towers. To the 11th century Edinburgh Castle, built on top of a hill, its shape dictated by the terrain. Very interesting to see the way that these, things, these castles have evolved over time in line with what we've already talked about. But let's now turn our attention to how they were built how and where as well, although we've already touched upon that a little bit. A fair few different factors went into selecting the location for a castle. It needed to be in, obviously, a readily defensible location. It needed to have ready access to nearby resources, particularly stone. That was the really important thing. But being near a major travel route was also something that was of great benefit to a castle because it helped to control the movement of people, not just you know military personnel, but also civilians and particularly merchants, uh, it allowed lords to tax traveling traders who used the roads. Uh, most castles were built near towns or indeed inside towns um, but uh, if, if they weren't it was still quite common for towns to spring up around them near them. Uh, again given the castle's role as an important political and economic center it wasn't uncommon for an isolated castle to, you know, over time become an urbanised centre as more and more people wanted to be close to the seat of power in the surrounding region. They were built in positions that often made them look impressive uh, this was a, a, a lesser priority for many castle builders, but they did want them to look as grand as impressive as, as possible. And they're often built in ways that forced visitors, whether hostile or not, to take the scenic route in order to get to them. You know, with winding roads that sort of showed off the impressive defenses, or indeed the uh, you know the, the the grandeur and the scale of these buildings here to anyone who was visiting, whether they whether they were of hostile intent or not. And again, this was about impressing people, a sense of grandeur, a sense of importance and power. And, you know, sometimes, as I say, in the case of a castle like Bodium Castle, the moat would just be ornamental rather than defensive, for instance. It just made the place look a bit nicer. Anyway, once you'd, select a low, once you'd selected a location that was sufficiently defensible and sufficiently grand with access to the resources that you'd need, you'd begin construction. Prior to stone castles becoming the norm, you'd just build with wooden earth, as I say, both of which easy to come by and work with. You dig it up, you chop it down. You didn't need skilled labourers to build an earth uh, or a wooden castle, uh, just people who could chop wood and dig rather than, you know, the experienced stonemasons that you'd need for a stone construction. Stone very expensive as I mentioned before. it was difficult to quarry, it was difficult to transport uh, given how heavy it was it still is. I mean stone its stone is still heavy today. it's not like stone used to be heavier but uh, this was one of the major logistical hurdles that stone the building a castle out of stone entailed often castles would be built near a quarry just to lessen the the, the heavy expenses of, of, of transporting stone from one place to another. Often if there were a, were a quarry nearby, that would increase the suitability of a location for a castle to be built. Because again, as I say, loading stone onto wagons or onto barges and onto a river, a very, very expensive and time-consuming thing to do. And then once it arrived at the location where you're building, it had to be, it had to be worked. Stonemasons were not cheap, and uh, skilled ones particularly uh, were very expensive indeed. The The whole process of building a stone castle was time-consuming. I mean, a, a, mot, a simple Mott and Bailey castle with a wooden palisade and earthworks and maybe a donjon, a stone donjon in the middle would take weeks, maybe months. A stone castle on the other side, big, expansive thing made of stone, it could take years, years and years and years, up to a decade to build a, a stone castle. So you can see some of the stuff that went into it. They were built using technology such as the treadwheel crane. These are cranes you may have seen them. They've basically got giant hamster wheels that propel them, that work them. Uh, these are operated by people walking inside the uh, the hamster wheel to operate these uh, these treadwheel cranes. And of course, they'd use wooden scaffolding that would be that was adapted and improved to bear the weight of enormous quantities of stone. But they were just outrageously expensive. Stone castles, so so expensive to build. Here's what uh, James of St. George, one of the most famous and skilled castle builders of the Middle Ages, here's what he had to say about the costs involved with building a castle. In case you should wonder where so much money could go in a week, we would have you know that we have needed, and shall continue to need, 400 masons, both cutters and layers, together with 2,000 less skilled workmen. A 100 carts, 60 wagons and 30 boats bringing stones and sea coal, 200 quarrymen, 30 smiths and carpenters for putting in the joists and floorboards and other necessary jobs. All of this takes no account of the garrison, nor of purchases of material of which there will have to be a great quantity. The men's pay has been and still is very much in arrears, and we are having the greatest difficulty in keeping them because they have simply nothing to live on. Castles were a ridiculously cost, costly endeavour to build, and it makes a lot of sense. You can see why only powerful noble families were able to build them. But here's the thing. Even after they were completed, even after they were built, the costs didn't dry up. They had to be maintained, and this wasn't cheap either. They required constant repair and upkeep to remain defensible and habitable. So you can understand, you can, I mean, it's very, it's very, very obvious why only very wealthy noble families had castles to call their own. But of course, maintenance wasn't the biggest concern of some castle holders. The biggest concern for many people living in castles was an attack from an enemy. As you might have already gathered, attacking a castle, it wasn't an easy thing to do, not at all. But nonetheless, castles were routinely attacked and besieged throughout the bulk of the Middle Ages. They were designed to be as impregnable as possible, of course. And often they were extremely difficult to assault effectively, but people did it typically through the use of siege warfare. Attacking a castle was possible. It was difficult, it was costly, and it was likely to fail. It was better instead to surround the castle, besiege it, and prevent food and supplies from getting to the people inside. The supplies that the people inside had on hand would only last so long, of course, and if you were able to wait long enough and make sure that no new supplies got to the people inside, eventually famine and disease would overtake those that were besieged inside the castle and they would be forced to surrender or unable to defend themselves from your attack when it finally came due to being you know, weakened with, uh, with hunger. But it could take a long time to starve a castle out, however months, sometimes years, in which time the defenders could call in reinforcements or you as the attacking army could have supply issues yourself and lose momentum from your uh, aggressive campaign. But if you needed to assault a castle, You had to make proper preparations. If you were going to launch a full-scale attack on a castle, it was no good relying on overwhelming numbers of force of arms. This was not going to do it. For instance, in 1403, Carnifon Castle in Wales, it held out against two separate attacks from besieging armies with fewer than 40 garrisoned archers. Reports tell of 37 people holding an entire castle by themselves in the face of enormous armies on the outside So you couldn't take a castle by sheer force of numbers. That wasn't going to do it. Instead, you had to rely on siege weapons, siege engines, mangonels, ballistae. These could attack and weaken fortifications or indeed kill the defenders garrisoning the castle inside it with their enormous uh, heavy projectiles. But these weapons, they were not as effective as you might think. They're often subject to counterattacks from the defending forces due to their somewhat limited range. You could also use siege towers, great big towers that would be rolled towards the castle on wheels, meaning you didn't have to scale the walls. You just climbed the siege tower once it reached the curtain wall and stepped onto the battlements uh, off a a plank, essentially, to fight there at the top of the wall. These aren't new. I mean, siege towers have been used since antiquity, but uh, they're often deployed in conjunction with battering rams in in, in taking, uh, taking medieval castles, unless, of course, there was a moat or these ditches in the way. That's one of the reasons that the fortifications like that were, uh, were so important, as they kept away siege towers, they kept away battering rams. You could also, of course, as we talked about before, send sappers to dig tunnels underneath the walls. Uh, difficult to do if there was a moat or if the wall's fortifications were dug uh, sufficiently deep, as we talked about. But the most famous and the most effective medieval weapon used against the defences of a castle was, of course... The trebuchet. The trebuchet. A trebuchet is an enormous catapult. It uses a sling on the end of a long arm to hurl heavy projectiles enormous distances. Unlike smaller catapults like mangonels, the sheer range of trebuchets kept them safe from the range of a castle's defences. The often a castle's defensive capabilities ranged out to three, four hundred metres, and trebuchets were able to fire projectiles up to. 450 meters. The classic trebuchet, of course, the counterweight trebuchet, used a heavy weight thousands and thousands of kilograms up to 4,000, five 5,000 uh, kilograms. Would, uh, this would be used to swing the arm around at a great speed and fire a projectile. As I say, you know, almost half a kilometer in distance. These projectiles were usually between 12 and 15 kilograms, although there were some that weighed hundreds of kilograms that could only be propelled at a, a shorter distance. Trebuchet's were enormously effective the most powerful siege weapon of the medieval era of course but they weren't without their drawbacks even the uh, the mighty trebuchet was uh, it was they were difficult and time consuming to build they weren't easily moved around some uh, siege engineers preferred smaller siege weapons that could be deployed at a at a shorter range in greater numbers in order to overwhelm the defending forces but it uh, but nonetheless the trebuchet, for a long time, since its inception all the way through to the development of a new technology that, that rendered the trebuchet obsolete, the trebuchet was, of course, the dominant uh, and, and perhaps most powerful piece of siege, uh, siege warfare hardware that was available to medieval armies during this period. But even the trebuchet would be re- rendered obsolete, as I say, as the next great technological advancement developed further and further, obsoleting not just trebuchets, but also the very castles that they sought to bring low as well. I'm referring, of course, to gunpowder. This is not going to be a surprise to anyone. You can hear all about gunpowder in episode 115. It was naturally a complete game changer when it came to not just castles and siege warfare, but warfare in general. To begin with, Castles could withstand early gunpowder weapons, and some were even built with cannons in mind. They, they were you know, seeking to remain defensible in the face of such a weapon. Towers were built to be round so as to, to deflect cannon shots, and walls were built thicker and thicker. But as gunpowder weapons improved and became more powerful, castles became less and less reliable as defensible military buildings. Many castles... Went so far as far as to adopt cannons into their defences themselves. They'd build gun ports into the sides of castle of uh, the walls and towers. But the offensive power of gunpowder weapons was too great for the defensive capability of castles. Walls, no matter how thick, could would would crumble under sustained assault from gunpowder weapons. And even the changes that castle builders made to compensate for this, they weren't enough. Slowly but sure. Well, I'm not even sure about how slowly, to be honest. Castles began to be phased out in favor of a brand new design that came out of Italy, the Star Fort. You might have seen star forts they're those low laying often pentagonal fortresses with angled walls and very sharp sharp corners designed to minimize incoming cannon fire while maximizing the fire range of the defensive cannons that would be uh, place on these bastions. I talk a lot more about star forts in episode one hundred and fifteen. You can listen to that for more details there. But here's another reason that star forts aren't castles, quite aside from their design and appearance here. You know, star forts are a different branch of military technology and don't really come under the history of the castle in the same way because they are not castles because they were almost always a pure military building. We discussed before that a castle was usually home To a noble family. There, of course, were some castles that were home to military orders, particularly throughout the period, uh, you know, where we saw the Crusades and that sort of thing. But for the most part, uh, for the most part, castles were built uh, to be occupied by noble families, and star forts were not. Noble families, as the advent of gunpowder changed the way that warfare was wrought, noble families, they instead began to take up residence in grand manor houses in the country. Impressive and stately and expensive, but utterly indefensible, of course. Times changed. The ruling classes no longer needed to ensconce themselves in fortified buildings. Instead, they were free to, I don't know, shoot swans or whatever it is rich people do. I've got no idea. But funnily enough, after a time, things actually came back to not quite where they began, but history did, the, the, the circle of history turned. And in the centuries that followed, during times like, you know, the Romance period when Gothic revival architecture took hold, all of a sudden, rich people were building castles again. They were back in vogue, not as military structures this time, not to be defended, but instead, as interest in medieval architecture arose, and, and and you know these grand, sweeping, romantic visions of the past uh, influenced the way that uh, the way that architecture, art, and culture continued to develop. The famous Neuschwanstein Castle, built by Ludwig II of Bavaria, we've talked about that in episode 136. Get across it. This is an example of one such castle, quote unquote, built for its appearance rather than you know to defend a couple of lakes in the German Alps, and the reason. It, the word castle isn't super appropriate when talking about Neuschwanstein is technically we should call a structure like that a palace, not a castle. It's a palace because it was built as a grandiose residence designed for the use of royals or you know other high-ranking knobs. There are palaces all throughout the world, but not for military defense. A big building designed to be defended is a fortress. A huge fancy house for rich nobles to live in is a palace. If you combine the two, Then, and only then, do you have a castle. And castles were an enormous part of the history of medieval Europe. They acted as political, military, economic, and administrative power centers, as I mentioned. They changed and developed over time in response to new technologies and innovations in architecture and warfare. And they remained a centerpiece of European medieval life. Today, castles have become a romantic ideal, mostly, and it's entertaining to see how utterly indefensible many famous castles from popular media would actually be in real life. But all the same, castles have remained an enduring symbol of the Middle Ages, and they provide a very interesting insight into the life and the times of the people that lived during this period of history. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of the castle: a whirlwind tour, a brief history of uh, of a very important piece of uh, of military and and I guess political hardware from the medieval era. And it's interesting to see, you know, the the distinction between the reality of the history of the castle and sort of how we perceive them in our minds in popular media today, because they are a very enduring symbol of history. And it is interesting to sort of pick apart what has lasted in terms of historical realism and our our conception of of castles and and what hasn't you know you look at many fantastical interpretations of what a castle is and it would just be the easiest thing in the world to overrun them because they're built on the side of a mountain for example and you just climb the mountain and attack them from above or whatever it's it it is it's it's quite interesting to see how, how this sort of has evolved from historical realism into you know our conception of it today anyway that is that i do hope you enjoyed the episode thanks so much for listening we're going to close of course the episode with all the normal, boring housekeeping stuff. Uh, history.net is the website. If you can go, if you want to go to anchor.fm uh, slash HalfHouseHistory, you'll find the feed you can subscribe to. Uh, and I want to thank, of course, all the people who are getting in touch every week. There's a contact form on the website uh, if you want to send in a topic suggestion or anything else like that. Always good to hear from people, get their feedback. But the biggest and most special thank you, of course, goes to the people supporting me on Patreon. And there are a number of new people who have jumped on the Patreon bandwagon. Thank you so much to all the people who have just jumped on board. It's great to have you along. Uh, if you'd like to join their exalted ranks, patreon.com slash half history. You can go there, get early, uh, get access to early, uh, early episodes, bonus content, all sorts of stuff. there are like that. I say it every week. You can do it if you want. You don't have to. Anyway. That is that for another week of Half-Arsed History. See you back here next week for more nonsense. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. Reddit historian Ben Marvin wants to know, If castles were built to protect from attackers, how did they ever get built if people were getting attacked all the time?